didn't matter if I got it done in 2014 or 15 or 16 or 20, 2040, right? I needed to stay focused on the outcomes versus the outputs. And once you're able to understand that the outcomes, you have your entire life to get them done, you work differently. Hey guys, welcome to Bluemex episodes in 2020. We have a great lineup uh, for you guys. Uh, as you notice, we're in a new location, the Huddle Share Space. We'll be filming out here from now on. It's also where our offices are. Um, and big shout out to MCRO who continues to support us. Um, if you guys need any apps, any kind of software development, definitely consider them in your uh, process. Uh, they do a great job and they support us so they can support you. One, two, three. Perfect, we're here with Hamza Khan. Hey. Man, I've been really looking forward to having you on, mostly just to have a conversation. Usually most of the guests that come on, we usually talk here and there before, the, before this, but based off your schedule, your nice schedule, we haven't had a chance to do that yet. So really right now, we're going to be really discovering ourselves through this podcast. But before we even talk about that, like we got, I got to know you through your book. Okay. Uh, when uh, The first time I heard your name was uh, when we were, still, we were still out of UFT. I was an entrepreneur residence there out of the hub. And you were scheduled to have a talk there, talk about your new book when this first came out, mm -hmm. The Burnout Gamble. And I wanted to bring you on and talk about what the hell is burnout? Because we've heard this term being thrown around a lot nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, but I really wanted you who uh, wrote a book about this to come out and really kind of cut through the noise yeah. and talk a little about this topic. And let's start from there. Sounds great, man. And yeah. uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here, first of all. And I yeah. appreciate your patience, man. Yeah. I know it's been a long time coming. The last time we kicked it was at the Athlete Tech Summit Mixer. Yeah, this randomly. This past summer, man. Whew. Yeah. The summer of 2019. It's been, it's been a few months, to say the least. It's been a few least. months. Um, so thank you for your patience and, and thank you for, for leading with the book and having this beautiful setup over here. Yeah. Shout out to Danica Willis for uh, the, the sweet graphics. I am always uh, in awe every time I see the cover. And it's it was great just so nice to come and see this on the desk over here. So what is burnout? That's a great question. And you preface that by saying it's a term that we throw out quite a lot. I mean, nowadays and nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, you think about maybe ways that you threw it around before you had any understanding of what burnout is. Mm -hmm. You would say things to your friends and your family, like I'm stressed out, I'm burnt out, I have no energy left in the tank, firing on all cylinders, burning the candle on both ends. And we would just almost trivialize it. Um, and so it was very validating for me when the World Health Organization reclassified burnout this past year, not that long ago, as a medical condition. And when that happened, I just took a few minutes to myself and I sat down with it and uh, I got really emotional because the process of writing this book came from a really personal place. Uh, it came from my episode, the last time where I burned out in spectacular fashion in 2014, mm. which was debilitating personally, professionally, and even academically as well. And so what I would describe burnout as, and it's not my description, it's the actual definition of, um, and there's many definitions, but the consensus is that burnout is a state of mental, physical, and emotional exhaustion. Mm. When you just have nothing left in the tank. Uh, when you're completely spent and there's a whole science behind this that is growing in its uh, understanding and its complexity, but there's typically 12 stages that precede total collapse, uh, starting with the compulsion to prove yourself all the way through burnout syndrome through and through. So, uh, you know, when, when you've overexerted yourself, mm -hmm. when you've stretched yourself too thin and you have nothing left to give yourself and give others, I would describe that as a uh, burnout. So like, Growing up, you heard the term like nervous breakdown. Yeah, this guy had a nervous breakdown. Is it akin to that? Is it related to that? Is it the same thing as that? What's the relationship there? They're in the same vein. Uh, and sometimes the nervous breakdown is part and parcel of burnout. 
there's a couple of steps and stages as outlined by Dr. Herbert Freudenberger and Dr. Gil North who coined the term burnout. Uh, specifically in the latter stages, so stage 10, 11, and 12, uh, many of the symptoms described are very similar to a nervous breakdown. So in some cases, uh, a nervous breakdown is a precursor to full-blown burnout, and in some cases, uh, nervous, the nervous breakdown is burnout itself. Yeah. Uh, they're one and the same. Now, I am somebody who uh, is a layman. I'm just a guy who happened to burn out and write a book about it. I'm not a medical expert by any means, and so uh, I would encourage the listeners and the viewers of this podcast to do their own research and hear from more credible sources. But yes, I would say that they're very much aligned. The Venn diagram uh, definitely overlaps. Amazing. Like, can we talk a little about that journey? Like uh, what, what burnout looked, for you, looked like for you yeah. and what led to that point? 100%. And uh, I'll go into a little <clears throat> bit more detail than I have gone in previous engagements. So I've done a TED talk about this and I'm very lucky to go around the world and speak about burnout and, and rehearse that story. But I'll try to offer a different perspective uh, for the Bluemax viewers and listeners. Mm -hmm. So in the year 2014 is when I was stretched, uh, the most thin I've ever been stretched. I was working two concurrent full-time jobs. I had my job at Ryerson University and I was also building up an agency at that time, which began as maybe 25% of my portfolio, then 50%, then 75%. And by the time I burned out, it was as demanding, if not more demanding than my full-time job running an identical shop mm -hmm. in spirit, at least at Ryerson. Uh, I was teaching, I was speaking, I was writing, I was consulting, I was traveling, all the while trying to just be Hamza, trying to hold down a steady relationship, trying to be a good son, trying to be a good brother, a good friend, and trying to be good to myself. Yeah. Um, and when you are that uh, leveraged, when you are that uh, stretched, when you were stretched that thin, all it takes is one random event, one small thing inserted into that mix that can topple the entire structure. Mm. And I can't remember what it was, um, that convinced me in the moment to book this trip of a lifetime. So the year started and I told myself, well, I kind of know what this year is going to be like. It's going to be a balls to the wall, intense, just rapid fire of a year. Mm. So I told myself at the end of the year, I would take this vacation, this vacation around the world. And I booked the tickets. I booked the trip. I planned the itinerary. I was ready to rock. And the day I was supposed to leave in December, so I had worked this crazy week, sorry, this crazy year. I was working seven days a week, essentially, anywhere between 12 to 15 hours a day, nonstop. And mo many, many days I would just compromise sleep. And, you know, once you compromise sleep, it eats into fitness and health and it's just the cyclical problem. So the day I'm supposed to leave on this trip at the end of the year where I told myself I'd re reward myself, uh, I got cold feet and uh, I had a panic attack, uh, an anxiety attack and... Uh, it was rough because here I am having finished this year that I thought I accomplished a lot in. When I look back, I didn't really accomplish a lot. It was all in my head. Mm -hmm. uh, I have very little to show in terms of accomplishments from that year. Uh, many of the accomplishments were echoes from efforts of past years that had compounded to that moment. So there was a bit of delusion that played into that. There was the unraveling of uh, my reality that was happening simultaneously and then added the stress of going on this trip around the world uh, and the rigor of the itinerary uh, led me to experience the emotional collapse, the physical collapse, the mental collapse that eventually led to burnout. And so for the entirety of December of 2014, I stayed at home because I just didn't have enough gas left in the tank. Uh, I was stressed, I was burnt out, uh, it, was, it was a bad scene. Uh, and I'm very upset about it, even now. Right? Here we are in 2020 and I think back about what that trip could have done for me. Uh, maybe it was the trip that I needed. 
Uh, I think about how my life would have been different had I not experienced that burnout, if I was able to maintain the momentum that I had built up in the lead up to that episode. Mm. Um, there's a different version of the story that played out. Maybe I wouldn't be here with you today, uh, for better or for worse. So, you know, I carry a lot of guilt about that. So much so that when I speak about it, even now when I'm speaking about it, I'm feeling feeling tired, I'm feeling exhausted. It's a very embarrassing thing for me to admit that I failed and I failed mm -hmm. in such, such spectacular fashion. Now, have I gotten good at telling that story? I have, especially when I'm doing it on stages. There's the sound bites and there's the story elements that I rehearse, but I very rarely had an opportunity to express uh, to you or anyone else really that it fucking sucks, man. Mm -hmm. It really does. Every time I walk off stage, having told that story in detail, um, I'm crushed, man. I'm, it's, the way I was raised and, and the way of work that I learned, uh, especially being in marketing, uh, really reinforced this idea of strong brand integrity, mm. that your brand has to be intact. And the brand that I wanted was one of industriousness, productivity, success, and you know at least the appearance of having it all together. And yeah. so can you imagine what it must have been like uh, when the world saw that I didn't have it together in 2014? It was, it was, it was, it was infuriating. Um, so I'll leave it at that. I realize I've been doing a lot of talking over there, but thank you for the opportunity to at least begin to explore just how tenuous of a relationship I have with the story that served as the undergirding of this book. Yeah, and thank you again for coming on and talking about this. Thank you. And again, in more detail, right? Because um, like you're taking something that's negatively happened in your life and spun it into a storytelling mechanism that's kind of had life on its own. Because now you're educating through your own personal story that this is happening. You come, kind of become a voice and a face to this, uh, to this emerging, I wouldn't say a crisis, but potential crisis, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Where people are going through this silently. And I mean, I, I start to see that like the, the idea of burnout, the idea of mental health, health now uh, is like thrown around so loosely in the, in the rush to be uh, accepting of it, that it comes off as kind of like insincere. Mm -hmm. Right? So when people who actually experience this come out and speak of it and tells them a personal story of what happened to them and even the guilt of talking about it afterwards and you know, how the side of pressure still affects them afterwards, even talking about it, I mean, that shows to like, the, really the courage that you have in pursuing this. I hope so and I hope that came through. I remember having a conversation, a debate rather, with my editor at the time uh, and she would tell me like, you have to tell more of your story, like lean into the story. Because I was just giving like a, here's what happened, I burned out, I passed out, I threw up and I didn't go to work. I mean, that was the comfort level that I had with my own story. There was a bit of revisionist history in there as well, mm -hmm. because my brain wouldn't allow myself to believe uh, that this actually happened. And I talked about that in the opening uh, prologue to the book. I talked about the first time I vividly remember burning out. I was an intern at Sony Music and I burned out so badly mm -hmm. that I went home. I didn't tell anyone about it. I didn't tell my friends, family. The first time I told anyone about it was in the book. I told all of you about it. Um, and even in writing it, it was so emotionally exhausting, exhausting and taxing that I remember like putting down the pen and just sitting there for probably an hour, just mm. being like, "Fuck, that actually happened!" And why am I? This is such a bad idea. Like, I, I, I didn't want to write the book. I'm just gonna put that out there. I, I, when I started this project, this was actually a derailment from what I really wanted to do. This was a detour, but I felt like I needed to write the book because, as you alluded to earlier, this is a growing problem. 
And I would take it a step further. This is a full-blown epidemic at this point. And when I say that, I think that's too limiting of a word to describe it. The World Health Organization has come out mm -hmm. swinging and said that stress is the health epidemic of the 21st century. It's how most of us are gonna die. There's four of us in the room right now. All four of us are gonna die because of something related to stress, if a natural disaster or other factor doesn't get in the way. Uh, this is, this is, the severity of this problem cannot be, cannot be over-communicated and over-expressed. So when I was burning out and recovering from the burnout process, I was journaling a lot. I was writing about it. Uh, I had done a lot of writing about this prior to, uh, about productivity and peak performance. And so I had the vocabulary and understanding of what needed to happen without the burnout. So when the burnout happened, I was able to understand the obstacle. But in trying to figure out what the obstacle was, I then began to unearth this knowledge and um, this this knowledge and this ideas, the ideas which eventually found their way into the book that I felt were not being considered, A, at the level that they should be considered, and B, with the seriousness that they should be considered. And that we were all walking around, uh, burning out or on the precipice of burnout, but because we didn't have the vocabulary or understanding of burning out, uh, that we would be helpless for when it came. And so I felt like in me writing the story, I was very much writing this for a younger version of Hamza. Yeah. And I'm happy that there are people out there in the world who strongly connected with, with the message in the book. And I myself have, have turned to it time and again uh, to help me veer off the path to burnout even now. Yeah. Like the way I understand burnout is like a, it's like a period where like you, it almost shifts you as a person, falling off a cliff, it has changed you right, as a person. Now, is this something that happens multiple times to somebody, somebody or it happens like a one big cliff like you fall off of or the stumbling block like how does that work that's a great question that you asked and one of the earliest criticisms i got from the book specifically <clears throat> from what i did a speaking tour in europe shortly after it was published a lot of shout out to the shout out to, to the bulgarian men man like uh, what, what a unique audience that i had to present this idea in front of okay and many of them came up after me to me afterwards and were like maybe you were just weak Hamza. holy right? shit and i was like shit maybe i was and they were like yeah come on, we don't burn out, uh, we're always burned out. And they would say things that were indicative of, of people who had seen things that were tough and intense and yeah. were so far outside of their comfort zone that they became comfortable and hardened yeah. within that space. And yeah, maybe some of them were perpetually burned out. There's actually a term to describe that. It's brownout, when you're burned out for so long that you actually can't recreate the chemical cocktail, the composition, to be the previous version of yourself that you were. You're just not as happy, you're not as content, you're not as satisfied, you're more on edge, but that's normal to you. Your yeah. reality begins to crystallize around you. So to think about the analogy that you gave, the cliff, right? Falling off the cliff. Burnout is when you fall off the cliff, but building resilience and building true strength and grit and resolve happens from when you're able to control that experiment so that you're not accidentally falling off the cliff, that you actually have a harness, that you're actually rehearsing the scenarios of climbing up and climbing back down, that you're building up your muscles. And we talked about this right before we came on air about you know doing things uh, and building up that competence, which then translates into confidence. Mm. I, could have, I could have arguably accomplished everything that I've accomplished today with less wear and tear had I not burned out, had I been more intentional about how I expend my energy and what kind of stress I allow in my life, the impact of that stress on my life and the frequency and predictability of that stress. Had I been more careful about controlling those variables, you would have had a healthier, happier, more accomplished Hamza sitting in front of you today. But the version that sits in front of you today had to burn out uh, in order to produce these ideas and have them. 
So it's a bit of a paradox that I wrestle with. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm regarded as an expert and uh, a, le a thought leader when it comes to burnout, but uh, did I have to burn out to become this person? I don't know if I'll ever know. Yeah, yeah. But my gut tells me that I didn't have to burn out to become this person. Everything I've researched and everything I know about this op the topic tells me that, um, you know, I didn't have to run outside of my comfort zone. I just had to walk. Yeah. Like it, it comes down to the understanding, right? Like I think one of the biggest issues is that we treat like as in we as in like society, we treat everybody like with one baseline framework of how things are supposed to be or you're supposed to be. And you're measured by how closely you are to that, right? Like, Going back to school systems and institutions we have built and the knowledge base we gain from society, we don't talk about these kind of things. No. We don't talk about mental resilience, we don't talk about emotional support. Uh, it's almost, again, we talk about things as a mental health kind of framework, if you're sick or not, right? Yeah. If you're sick, then like, yeah, we need more resources for you because you're sick. Yeah. But no, there's almost literally no I, I thought that goes into, let's prevent people from getting sick. Yes. Let's have, like, let's what even give the them the systemic supports and the structural supports that can prevent people from getting or sick. even giving you the tools that this could happen to you yeah look out for these kind of things right right we think of mental health as like oh you have a gene inside you that triggers and you're seeing things and hearing things yeah, yeah. and like you know like it's something that happens to you or like you're already pre-ordained pre for it well there's gonna be other ways of like you said it's burnout is that your environment might not be indicative to like what you're primed for Right, where the modern workforce, workplace can change you, right? So it's one of the, go, go back to a talk. I actually saw it on like, heard it first in the Joe Rogan podcast. And one of the main reasons that drove me to that podcast is how they talk about this, right? Mm -hmm. It's like when, in, in, for modern humans, when you're sitting in a workplace and your biggest threat is your boss coming and screaming at you, you know, slams on work in front of you and <laughs> you feedback, your body reacts like how your ancient uh, ancestor would to a lion attack. Yeah, the amygdala hijack, right? right? Yeah. Fight, flight, or freeze. It, it, like, and it's just like, how is this super safe environment anything close to like a lion jumping out of the bushes oh, and taking boy. you out? Um, why is it triggering that? And, it, and uh, it, part of the thought line goes uh, back to, it's like how we, build resilience, right? Right. The fact that we're sitting down most of our life, the fact that we have no physical struggle yes. to actually tune our, tune our mentality like, to what stress is. So when a small bit of stress does come out, it's almost taken out of context. Debilitating, yeah. And like, I've been working out since I was super young. I mean, my I dad got that, me man. into that. Thank you, man. A dime piece, man. Thank you. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, part of that, like I didn't realize what it did for you. Yeah. When, you when you're like, almost punish your body with these heavy weights or like doing like crazy cardio or like anything that's like super physical, you're not just training yourself and your, and your body, but you're also showcasing your, your mind. This is a pain point. Your yes. body reacts like this, this diet dude trying to kill me. Creating new right. associations, right? right? Yeah. So this is what stress is. Holy yeah. shit, this is stressful. And like, like now I do like high cardio, like either like 20 to 40 yeah. minutes of cardio yeah, every yeah. day just to start my day and you notice a difference endorphin rush that, you, yeah, that comes man. out of it because your body gets put in that pain point the pain this is pain yeah i mean you know this is what pain is afterwards like you breathe the center of relief mm -hmm. and your body's like okay flushed out for sure man so if you if you if you bench two plates in the morning you're like oh my god like my chest is about to explode my muscles are tightening up i feel all the blood just leaving my body mm. i'm lightheaded if you get that done first thing in the morning, then you show up to work, there's nothing your boss can tell you that is more painful than the physical pain that you endure prior exactly. to, right? You're right. And, and you know, even in the lead up to this, I was very intentional about structuring my night last night 
didn't stay up late, had to get enough sleep, woke up this morning, went to the gym with the understanding that I would show up today and do something that is outside of my comfort zone. Now you would probably assume based on, you know, maybe hearing me and watching me speak and, you know, all the things that we've talked about the book and speaking and whatnot, that I'm naturally confident. I'm naturally an extrovert. Uh, that couldn't be more far from the truth. Mm. I'm very shy. I'm very nervous for most of my life. I've had very negative self-talk. I struggle with imposter syndrome. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm shy. I'm, I'm, I'm borderline. Sometimes I'm like, am I antisocial? I'm like, no, no, no. It's a, you're just awkward and nervous. And so, uh, I have to train myself. I have to create new associations and, uh, build new neural net neural pathways to allow Mm. myself to show up the way that I am today. This was all very intentional and calculated, man. Yeah. So let me dive into this, right? Like you know, you're, I have all these attributes. Why go into a field like marketing or in a place where like you put yourself in the forefront? Uh, uh, happenstance, serendipity. Um, how that happened, sir, was uh, I just didn't know any better. It was my socialization. It was where I was born, who I was born to, where I lived, where I was raised my uh inputs when i was very younger sorry where were you raised where'd you i was raised in scarborough right here man man. yeah for sure man i was born in new york raised in scarborough spent most of my life here uh and you know born to a very specific set of parents with their own lived experiences so why marketing became appealing to me is uh i was enthralled by the media industry when i was younger i was a huge wrestling fan wwe still am to a certain extent I loved all of the early movies that I watched, E.T., Jaws, Terminator, big blockbuster movies. Uh, I was fascinated by music videos. I I mean, the first time I saw a hip hop music video, I fell off my chair. I'm not even kidding. I was sitting in class and um, (laughs) it's a weird story. I've never told the story out loud, but it was grade nine and it was show and tell. And uh, these two girls were showing a music video, their favorite music video at the time, (laughs) which... uh, (laughs) was Cisco's thong song, okay. which think about in grade nine, just how bizarre that must have been. Mm-hmm. Just, we pull up this little TV over there and Tanash and Keisha are about to go play the thong song, but uh, they didn't forward it far enough. And so the first video they played was the song prior to that, which is DMX, What's My Name? Yeah. And now I'm just sitting there and my face is melting. I'm like, whoa, what the hell is this? this like sweaty guy with a sledgehammer just smashing TVs and just dogs barking and this panopticon of people just cheering. I was like, it triggered something primal in me. And I saw that, I'm like, that, I I don't know what that is, but I need to be involved in that. And so I became very interested in creating music videos. I would play with the family camcorder and I would get my buddies together like, yo, let's remake a 50 cent music video. Let's Mm -hmm. remake a Backstreet Boys video. And we would do that early days of the internet. We would make these music videos and be like, okay, but how do we get people to see this now? And so when I was very young, in my teenage years, I was like, oh, okay. I was doing the things now in hindsight that would later become the, the, the foundation, the cornerstones for my marketing career. I was learning how to promote things that you create. I was learning uh, the value of community management, of building websites, of good graphic design and user experiences and experiential marketing and all of that. So it was something that I was competent doing. I knew that I was good at marketing. And then when I was able to figure out those other three circles of the mm-hmm. Ikigai framework, which is I would highly encourage all the Bluemex viewers and listeners to check out I-K-I-G-A-I. And actually, Dale, if you could pull that up, I-K-I-G-A-I, Ikigai, the framework. I think I have a blog post about that. Uh, where it's what you're good at, what you love doing, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. Those are four overlapping circles. And I think it's going to come up any time now. 
um, yeah, it's that, that circle right over there, that overlapping. Perfect. Right? Yeah. And so what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs and what you can be paid for. And the oh, wow. intersection of between what you're good at and what you can be paid for is your profession. Mm. So I was good at marketing and I was also being paid for marketing. So I found my profession over there. And then the next 10 years of my life were a series of experiments to fill out the rest of that Venn diagram. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Shout out to DMX, by the way. Yeah. Putting that out there, DMX, man. man. Welcome home, man. I know exactly what you mean. Like introducing, to, getting introduced to hip hop, growing up in Scarborough, yeah, you, you can't man. help not you can't help, help it. It's part of it's part of the lingo. It's part of the code. It's part of our DNA, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm forever gonna be a hip hop head because of how I was raised. And how crazy is it nowadays? Kids can exactly the experience you had, like getting camcorders and organizing that. You know, download an app oh. within seconds, TikTok themselves to 30 million views. Oh my god, this right? is, what a beautiful thing that's happening right now, where everyone is simultaneously a consumer and a creator. Yes. Once upon a time, there was a gatekeepered industry, a, a gatekept industry of the creators, and all of us were just consumers praying at the altar of music and movies and publishing. But this self-published man, I did this. There was no middleman. It was just me, the designer, the editor, and got to market when I wanted that when I wanted that to happen. I'm so excited, so pumped for future generations. I mean, we're going to look back at this podcast. It's 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 great right now. But a hundred years from now, kids are going to watch this podcast and be like, they were talking about some old school concepts. Right? And that's, that's, but that's the point though. Yeah. Like we, we want to extend the runway of what's possible for them, but also take where our starting line is and move that up a couple miles. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that excites me about YouTube and like why we're on YouTube. Like we could have done this as an audio podcast, super lo-fi and yeah. got, got a scale. But the reason we want to do video, especially 4K HQ, HQ video with like um, with HQ audio yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Because yeah, not just that, but like this idea that the internet is causing like the same kind of effect as the Gutenberg printing press did. Yes, sir. Wow, what a great reference. Yeah. Right. It's like the printing press gave people the power at with the lowest cost ever to mass produce their own materials and print and pass it out. Yeah. And over a succession of generations, it got more and more cheaper and more and more accessible. And now we're at the point where, for right now, we can just put up a camera, record all this stuff in pure in in, in, in purest form. Yes. You know, not just what you say, but how you said it, body language, all that. Absolutely. Put it up online, and it's there. Yes. That can be reshared and reshared and like in exactly the way oh, it was man. shot, and that's the thing that kind of excites me about putting Same. stuff up and putting yeah. content up, right? That's what that's the driving force behind that. We're creating this now, this mesh web of all these thoughts and ideas codified. That's there in perpetuity forever. I love it, man. That gets me so excited. I'm so fired up by this idea that you know we're seeing them right now. Like we're seeing Dale, we're seeing Christian. I mean, for all intents and purposes, compared to you and I. Whiz kids, mm. right? One person marketing agencies, they have the full plethora of skills that we had to learn piecemeal. And we had to learn through very formal, traditional, outdated ways, right? Textbooks and classrooms and whatnot. And these kids are going on YouTube and they're just talking to a friend, they're sending a WhatsApp message and they're downloading the skills almost akin to that scene in the Matrix. Like, wow, I know Kung Fu is like, wow. I know Illustrator. Wow, I know how to run these, you know, these 4K simulations over yeah. here and, and render these graphics uh, in, in in a fraction of the time that it would take for us to do it. And so, once they're able to skip those steps and get right to the creation and the expression, think about what the next innovation is going to be, right? Absolutely. What a time to be alive. Yeah. I mean, literally before you came, I was walking by. Kason was outside taking care of the yeah, the whiz kid, Kason. Yeah, right. He uh, is walking by and he's teaching himself how to do animations, video uh, animations. And I'm like, yo, what is that? I was walking by. He's like, yeah, I just teach myself. I'm like, 
Do you want to do this for us? Right. Like, we kind of need that. I know, man. And he's learning them on the fly while doing the, taking care of our audio. <laughs> it's such a bummer, man, because I'm teaching a class tomorrow and uh, this is curriculum that was previously designed. And I have to teach these kids HTML and CSS. I'm mm. so pissed off. I'm like, man, I'm wasting my time teaching these kids HTML and CSS. There's nothing right now in the modern world of work that requires you to go in, unless you're a developer, mm. and figure out how to change some code. I mean, these problems have been solved. The way websites are being built right now, it's drag and drop, it's yep. plug and play, it's out of the box solutions. And I wanna just catch up to where they're already at, mm. right? That would be the equivalent of you and I learning Latin as the basis to be able to construct poetry in English. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure, it helps, yes, having the foundational understanding, but uh, look at just the, 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 the full array of things that can be done right now, the ways that you can express yourself. You don't need to have a foundational understanding in videography and photography and uh, audio engineering to produce a podcast. Like you said, turn the camera, face it your way, download Anchor FM if you're listening to this. Boom, you've got a podcast tonight. Yep. And um, then you start to build on top of that. Absolutely. I actually heard of Anchor checking out your site. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Anchor is a wicked platform. Yeah. You throw out the audio there, it'll get put ads for you. And as as you publish and get uh, viewers to listen in, it'll pay you out. Exactly. Right? It synchronizes to all the platforms. It publishes mm -hmm. to Google, to Spotify, to uh, Apple, Apple Podcasts. And I had to get it because I'm a dumbass. I don't know anything about this, right? I have a very cursory understanding. And so now you imagine the kid that is able to create their own RSS feeds and get them individually synchronized through a third-party application where they build their own and then they can control all their analytics. I mean, what a beautiful time. What a beautiful time. And our job, you and I, Ravi, is to make it possible that whoever's listening to this podcast has a better head start than us. Absolutely. Uh, and I really appreciate you putting it out there because that's kind of what this started for, to kind of publish these kind of conversations. Uh, we were talking before about how this thing started, and that's part of the thing. I was having these kind of conversations with founders all the time. Yeah. I'm like, why can't we just put up online? You know? Can you imagine what our life would have been like if we had access to these conversations? Right? You had a guest come on just before me. You're going to have three more today. You're an absolute monster. But the kids who are going to be able to sit down and hear Hamza and hear all these other guests just give you their best ideas in a very bite-sized format, I mean, you're basically just getting cheat codes. Yeah. You're just downloading the cheat codes. You're learning how to do them. You're learning how to do a fatality before you even start playing the game. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I just want to tone back, uh, cut back to the book, right? Like I want to go back onto almost like your founder journey and creating this book. Cause like, okay, there's a whole mechanism that went to yes in writing it. Yeah. What happened in publishing it? You know, what was the journey in publishing? Yeah. Well, the, the journey Going from publishing back to self-publishing and being able to do things yourself. Great question, man. How'd that look like? Man? So for all the entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs watching and listening to this, understand this, especially if you're doing this for your first time. Mm -hmm. If you're creating a conference or publishing a book or launching a podcast, and you know this, the last 10% is harder than the first 90%. I did not know when to hit publish on this. I was just writing and editing, writing and editing, obsessing over the marketing, mm -hmm. obsessing over the design. It didn't feel perfect to me. But to quote Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, if you're not embarrassed horribly by the first version of your whatever it is, you've waited too long. Mm. And this book needed to get out because so much of it depended on touching the zeitgeist at that particular point in time. 2017, when the conversation about burnout and stress management, as it pertains to the individual, was still very nascent by comparison. So I had to slap on constraints and tell myself it has to get out before my birthday. Like, that's it. I yeah. can't wait any longer. And some real power comes from artificial constraints. Like there's no reason why you need to do a hundred episodes, 
Why'd you pick that number? You could have picked 50, you could have picked five, you could have not picked a number. But when you have 100 episodes in mind, you know this as a, as, 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 as a student of neuroscience, that Parkinson's law kicks in. Work expands so as to fill the time allocated for its completion. Now you're at 42 and that sense of tension and creative impulse kicks in. You're like, Ooh, okay, so 42, what, what's it gonna take to get to 100? I mean, there's such a finality with that number that you really wanna knock that one out of the park. It's gotta be a home run. And so you start to work differently, you think differently, mm. you're more inventive, you're more alert, you're more creative as a result. So the process for publishing was a little messy at first and then I had to remind myself of some of the tenets that are in this book, which is create artificial constraints in the absence of them. Because there was no editor or publisher telling me that I need to get this published, I had to tell myself that, or rather trust a future version of Hamza that said, get this out into the world by August 26th. And that's what I did. And then I was able to work more feverishly towards getting it done, but also put my pen down and stop trying to make it perfect. I mean, I think back to the Muhammad Ali quote, you can never make the right decision, or you can, sorry, you can make the right decision sometimes. Um, you can't always make the right decision, but you can make a decision and then make it right. The first version of this book, more than a dozen spelling mistakes. People were sending me, you know, uh, text messages like, "Hey, Hamza, like, how'd you mess that up? Like, yeah. how'd you get that? How'd you get that grammar issue wrong? Aren't you an English literature student from the University of Toronto Scarborough?" I'm like, "Yeah, with honors too, man." Uh, so I was horribly embarrassed by the first version, and shout out to all the people that bought the first edition of the book. I was able to send them second edition copies of the book, and if you haven't gotten a second edition copy, hit me up. I got a box at home waiting for you. Um, but that, that was it. If I didn't hit publish, it would have never gone out. How was the mechanics behind it? So let's say when you finish writing it and you're like, okay, it's time to get this thing. Did you already have a process of how to publish it? Or did you finish writing it first and then looking to publish? Like how did that go? I did exactly what you did. You surrounded yourself with really good people. You understood what your limitations were, what your weaknesses were, and you hired for them. Uh, I, even though uh, I began my marketing career as a graphic designer, I lost my touch. There's no way I would be able to come up with this beautiful design in front of you. So I had a budget set aside. I hit up Danica, who's my go-to uh, designer. And I said, Danica, publishing a book, what's it going to take? And she quoted me. I'm like, let's go. Let's rock. When it came to editing, I was like, I've seen too much of this book. It, I now have tunnel vision. I hired an editor. Then I hired an editor to edit the editor's work. So two layers of editing. Then when it came to publishing, I, ex uh, I outsourced that to a company out in Vancouver called Tellwell, yeah. uh, who support first-time authors or just... Uh, you know, DIY authors, um, and they will get you set up for a fee. I think it was a very nominal fee, just under 5K, but they'll take care of reproducing your designs for the publications on physical copies, uh, hard copy, soft copy, and then also eBooks as well. And they will take care of distribution for you. And I think that was the deal they had at the time. I think they've changed since then. So I'm not sure if Tellwell is still as uh, helpful as they once were to uh, independent publishers. Mm. But I had help from other people as well. Now, could I have done all of this myself? Yes, I could have, but it would have taken me so long. It yes. would have taken me almost a year to figure out and rectify the mistakes. But that's the beauty of having, you know, young talent that has grown up in this day and age that understands these skills that is special, that, that are special, that are general specialists, right? Generalist specialists, that's even a thing. I mean, generalists, I'm not sure. We need to come up with a better name for them. Yeah, yeah. But these people who are experts in multiple fields. Yeah. And like, I think the, the growing like entrepreneur scene right now is not just hardcore entrepreneurs that people can bring together this talent pool, right? Mm -hmm. People who could see, oh, this talent can be utilized this way. Like I need to build this, so I need this people, right? It's so all the skill set in itself, identifying the talent required and then the people, how to qualify that talent, right? Like, Absolutely. If you don't know a field, how do you qualify who's good in that field? Right. 
It's a big question mark. It's a very big question. And uh, I don't know the exact term. Somebody threw it around in a podcast recently, mm. but I think it's the cult of the mediocre or cult of mediocrity, maybe. Same thing. But this idea that because the barriers to access are so low, that what is considered to be good has now become muddied. We don't know what good is anymore because there's so much noise. There's such a volume of average content out there. So whenever you see a podcast that has the level of quality and production that Bluemex has, it's a breath, it's a moment of breath, it's a, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. It's mm. a moment that requires pause. You're like, oh, there's levels to this. Like I could do this in my bedroom. I could do this at uh, you know a co-working space without all the fixings. But if I do it with the same level of intentionality, with the professional microphone, with the team, with the lighting, with the backdrops, then as a consumer, that resonates differently. Absolutely. That I'm more in tune with this than I am with anything else. I mean, there's a reason why, uh, you know, sonically, the Joe Rogan podcast does what it does because they've made the investment into the quality of the audio. They have an audio engineer, Jamie. Mm -hmm. They've got the television that is synchronized. So whenever Joe Rogan is having a brain fart, he can be like, pull it up, Jamie. And they have a conversation about right then and there. Uh, there's such a consummate professionalism now compared to episode one, which I would highly encourage all the Bluemex listeners and viewers to check out the first episode of the Joe Rogan experience. If you ever feel like what you're publishing right now is garbage, go back and watch that. Yeah. Can't be worse than that. Yeah. Um, so it's exciting. I mean, what, what we're seeing, what you're doing over here, it just hits different. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. And like going back to what your touch point was, like utilizing a specialized talent. Yes. Like how much specialized talent out there. It's ridiculous. Unbelievable. Um, when we put it to get this together, that's my biggest learning curve was how many people out there are just open to work on projects and have developed the skills that you're looking for. Uh, I mean, bringing in people to plug and play, right? It, it becomes that. It's right. like you're plugging in this talent pool can provide us resources, talent into this. You're now in charge of creating the process. Yes. So, I mean, going back to you know, the hundred, right? So when we started this, I'm like, we had to do a hundred. Mm. Everyone is telling me is like, you know, focus on one. Yeah. You know, Scale one. Get, get one. one done properly and you can learn about that and you figure out how to replicate that. I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, the unit of economics, economics have to make sense. If you go backwards, right? How do we hit a hundred? Perfect. Then you can look backwards like, what can I replicate? What can I automate away? What, how can I structure this so I can have a process that you can bang out? You hit your stride. Hit the stride. There's no growth that happens from doing one bicep curl, yeah. right? The real growth happens when you're at the point of failure, 30 reps in. Yeah. So like, I mean, this is one of the things you learned again from working out. Mm -hmm. right? Like, It's not about the one push-up or doing 30 push-ups, but like, how do you do 30, 300? Yeah. Well, you don't have to do it all at one time. Right. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. Right? If you do 30 in the morning, 30 in the evening, 30 in the afternoon, 30 in the evening, you've done 90 push-ups that day. Exactly. And you do that every day, you can hit that 300. My man, consistency over intensity. Farah exactly. Sahabi talks about that a lot, right? right? GSP's coach. Yeah. And you can break your, by breaking these things down, right? It makes it easier and more tangible. Absolutely. You feel more accomplished about it too. Absolutely, man. Right? And when, since you're, it's all leading up to a bigger goal, it's like, a, it's, it's, it becomes a process that you just following through now. And I, I love that you brought that up. That, and that's what I wish I heard, right? I mm. wish I heard when I was going through that intense period of exertion, that intensity wasn't the way. Consistency was the way. That do fewer things, but do them consistently so that you can experience the benefit of the compounded result. Yeah. Versus just feeling like I had to get everything done in 2014. What a stupid idea. Didn't matter if I got it done in 2014 or 15 or 16 or 20, 2040, right? I needed to stay focused on the outcomes versus the outputs. And once you're able to understand that the outcomes, you have your entire life to get them done, you work differently. Now slap on artificial constraints, but be generous, be compassionate to yourself, man. 
Um, I'm glad that my body did what it did. I'm glad that my body had an involuntary response and shut me down, shut off my ego, shut off my brain and actually debilitated me such that I couldn't push it any further. In 2014, when I burned out, I very much view that as my body rebelling against my desire to exert myself and essentially abuse it in the service of some misplaced goal that was largely driven by ego. I'm, 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 I'm comfortable enough now to admit that. Yeah. Um, shit, man. <laughs> You took me all the way back, man. Yeah, you took me yeah. all the way back. And I'm glad that you did. Can I, can I go back to something earlier, though? Yeah. So we're talking about maybe the role that, that society and, and you know, organizations can play in helping the individual. How much of this current discourse around stress and burnout is disproportionately Placed, the solution is disproportionately, disproportionately placed on the individual. Like there's only so much sleep you can get, so much green juice you can drink, so much meditation you can do, mm. so much journaling, so much exercise you can do. But where's the responsibility when it comes to governments? Where's the responsibility when it comes to businesses? Uh, what about the role of technology where now you open up Instagram and instantly, as soon as you log off, you feel worse off than when you first logged in because you're comparing the progress of making it to episode 45, but you've got a buddy that's on episode 86. And then you go to Joe Rogan, he's on episode 1200. So you have that constant comparison. Um, where, how do you as Ravi reconcile that there are forces outside of your control that are causing you to act out in ways that might be unnatural? Uh, Sorry for the long-winded question. No, I feel like I've been rebelling against that my whole life. You know, somebody else's blueprint, somebody else's comparison, somebody else's time zone? Thousand percent. I mean, I was a kid that skipped school all the time. Yo. So I couldn't stand the environment. <laughs> I couldn't stand it. You know, I went to school down the street here, Warden Finch, Lamoureux. Man, Shut if you look mouth. at my like skip record, like a missed class record. You're getting calls all the time, eh? All the time, right? I had a whole system to how to deal with that. Shit. But like it came <laughs> to the point where like I just knew it was not my environment. Yeah. Right. And I mean, the reason why uh, I got into entrepreneurship was very early on. I just, I just learned how to take care of myself. Right. Because I felt like everything else around me just didn't fit into my modality, into what I wanted to do. Gotcha. So I'm like, I just figured things out for myself. Right. And really what changed for me was getting to university. Because getting to university, it just gave me freedom. No mm. one is there telling me what to do. No one is telling me, like, this is your framework, this is what you yeah. had to fit into. I had, like, I used to skip almost all my school classes in university. Again, most of it is recorded so you can watch on the web later if I needed to and yeah, cram it all yeah, in yeah. before an exam. But I would skip that and go into completely other classes. Right? Very Steve Jobs-esque almost. Right. I just want to see like what 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 is this? Like yeah. what what is geography? What is like economics? Calligraphy, all of that. Yeah. Yeah, poetry. I went into random classes. I love it. Right? Man. Just to check out what the hell's going on. Student of life. Tried to be, right? I just wanted to understand things that are going on. And I want to figure out for myself where to go. Yeah. I just knew I was hungry for something. I didn't know what I was hungry for and what to do, right? And like all the business I started, all the side hustles, everything was almost a tool to learn new things while funding me to keep going. So I was like, uh, what's it? Uh, Simon uh, Sinek talks about this now, the, the infinite game. The infinite game, yeah. I found myself like, I've been playing an infinite game because mm -hmm. everybody close to me looks at me and is like, what are you doing now? What is yeah. Ravi up to now? Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't understand. I can't place you in a category. I'm like, that's, that's your problem. That's your problem. You know what I mean? Like, fuck. I just do what the fuck I want. Yeah. But man. as long as it keeps me going to the next thing I want to do, what, what else is better in life, right? And if I can create a mechanism that helps me do it at scale and do it for other people, why not? You're going to dig this, man. The, the idea of a portfolio of work. So I have this mentor, man. Uh, shout out to GB. He's going to know who he is. 
Uh, but he gave me some advice that I think was bad advice when we met at a mentorship breakfast uh, last year. Mm. He was uh, looking at my description of myself and he's like, Hamza, you got to pick a lane, man. Pick a lane. Pick the through line. Are you a burnout guy? Are you an entrepreneurship guy? Are you a marketing guy? Are you an educator? Make yourself understandable and palatable to everyone else. And I sat on that and I struggled. I was like, yo, man, but I'm, I'm a good teacher and I'm a good speaker. I'm a good author and I'm a good marketer. So why do I have to, why does it have to be an either or thing? Mm. And then you know who gave me permission to change the way I think? LeBron James. He did an interview where he's like, I'm not a basketball player. I'm a guy who happens to play basketball. And I was like, oh, if the pinnacle of the sport is saying that he's more than the sport, more than an athlete, and he transcends this as a father, as a husband, right? As a brother, as a, you know, all of the different ways he identifies himself as a human being. Shit, what are we mere mortals struggling about here? So I sat down and I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm Hamza and I care about the future of work and mm -hmm. I care about youth and early talent transitions. And I happen to be a speaker. I happen to be an author, happen to do all these things. And that's who I am in 2020 and 2021, ask me again. Absolutely. It might be a different set of things. But the point is I have a portfolio of work just like you do. And I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't, you shouldn't have to dumb yourself down for the audience to understand what you do. The onus is on them, like you said, to catch up mm. to the complexity, the multifarious quality of Ravi. Yeah. I actually don't know what you do, mm -hmm. right? I know that you do the podcast, but I'm also wise enough to understand that this is one of the multiple expressions of Ravi that you have. I understand Ravi the person, I understand your spirit, your vibe and what you're trying to do and how you're trying to fashion the world into something that would have been better for a younger version of Ravi and I respect that. But how you do it, man, I'm, I'm prepared for you to change that tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, and you kind of have to be. Like, I feel like the, the, the future, especially now, talking about the future of work, is gravitating more towards that. People are more agile. Absolutely. Who are able to pivot on the dime, right? have to be. Have all this, like a portfolio of work, like you said, underneath them. It could be literally a portfolio of things they have done, accomplished, ticked off, yes. Yep. But it also could be the skills you've acquired, the network that you have built, right? And all this is a platform to propel you for the next thing. Absolutely. Right. Man. And as long as it sustains you and feeds you, right, you're kind of taking care of your essential needs. Yep. You're good and allows you to keep moving forward. That's interesting you say that, man. I did an interview with uh, John Ruffalo, then uh, CEO and president of Omer's Ventures. Oh, John. Yeah. John, man. And uh, dude, he rocked me with that interview. He, I asked him, like, what is your North Star? What are your guiding principles? Like, what are the things that you continue to invest in? It was like a big question like that. And he said two words, mm. optionality, adaptability. I want the maximum amount of options and I want the ability to navigate that optionality. And I was like, wow, what wow. a future proof motherfucker. Man. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The world is going to change tomorrow. Today you're dealing in, um, you know, stocks, bonds and investments and all of these vehicles and instruments that you're creating. And tomorrow that could go belly up and you might have to become a, a carpenter. But I have no doubt with that mentality, you're going to be the best carpenter in the world because yeah, of that. Yeah. Right? Because you prioritize optionality and adaptability, the ability to um, withstand and adapt to stress and to have the maximum amount of options within your uh, uh, construction as a person, as a professional to choose from. And I think that is the skill uh, that we should all be investing in, that dual, that dual skill of optionality and adaptability. Because the future of the work, man, future of work um, is going to be unforgiving. It is. Uh, all of the reports suggest that the number is 2030, the year at which 70% of the workforce will be disrupted by these digital technology uh, advancements that are taking place, artificial intelligence and machine learning, so on and so forth. Uh, it's going to be a different world. Yeah. I don't know if the, the net jobs lost will be... Uh, uh, I'm scared, man. Yeah. I'm scared. 
I don't, I don't know how my father fits into that world. I don't know how my mother fits into that world. And there are things that I do on a daily basis that are not going to translate well into the future because they can be easily automated. I can think of an algorithm now that could do them. Mm -hmm. So I'm on a mad dash to A, outsource and reduce my portfolio down into the individual components that can be automated while simultaneously building up my human skills, creativity, empathy, resilience, attunement, all of those things that cannot be easily distilled down into uh, binary, let alone an equation. Yeah, I mean, that's a quick way of putting it, like future-proofing yourself. 100%. Um, I don't think there's enough people thinking about this. Yeah. The rate of change is just starting. Yeah. We're at the beginning of the fourth industrial revolution. Yes. Right, and if you look back, at, like I'm, I love looking back at history, right? I'm a huge history nerd like that. And each wave of industrialization has been, has led to a lot of violence, mm -hmm. has led to a lot of destruction, a lot of wealth creation, but a lot of the times, a lot of people who didn't participate Displacement, in Displacement, big lot, time. Yeah, yeah. A, a widening between those mm -hmm. who have and those who don't. Who, who don't. Yeah, yeah and, and kind of fulfilling into, fitting into that framework. I mean, part of the reason we do this, like with, with Bluemax, our, our job is like our North Star is trying to help other people in mass, trying to navigate, trying to participate in this wealth creation. Right. So what I see is there's huge wealth creation being made. You're going to get a fraction of that and redistribute it on a wide base. I feel going to radically change how society is structured from the haves and have nots. I think that's very important because if technology is utilized for, again, the people who have against the have nots, then we're having a widening of the displacement, right? Having a widening of, you know, the, the, everything, the wage gap, to the power gap, to the ability gap, right? Everything kind of grows and shifts. And the thing is, the fourth industrial wave is a little different from everything else because the rate of change is higher and the potential wealth being created and being disrupted is a lot greater than yes, what it was before. Yeah. I think it's going to be a mountain compared to the, the mountains that we've crossed previously. Absolutely. And if that gets, again, centralized into a few hands, like there's a potential like uh, that the, the haves can turn into almost a different species oh, because of their ability of control over the have-nots. The technocrats, the technologists living up in Elysium while the rest of us languish down here below in the squalor. Right? Absolutely. Fuck. Right? Whereas, and I think that we're at the prefaces of this kind of two duality of thinking. Yes. Right? Do we go this way? And if we go this way, yes, it'll appear for the people who have that they're so, they have so much and it's kind of like an ego grab where it's right. like, I have this, you don't have this, and, and we're part of the elite group, but it'll be radically less than what we can achieve as a species if technology can be utilized for the masses. Hmm. If individuals ha are empowered by technology at a, at a greater at scale, wow. we, uh, we shorten that gap, as a species, we would evolve faster. We kind of generate this hive mind right. that kind of interconnected, right, individual right. brains now hyper-connected through yes, technology, sir. Right, that are kind of kind of uh, radically changing how fast we evolve. Wow, as a species, right? That's exciting, man. And like this podcast is a good example of that. These are two minds that would have connected eventually, but are now connecting in a very public way, mm. in a way that can be easily transcribed, and this knowledge can be fed and dispersed into social media posts and blog posts, and be fed into presentations and so on and so forth. And the ideas being generated from this discourse. Uh, will then go and reach somebody else. And maybe between the two of us having a dialogue, we're agreeing on some things, we're disagreeing on some things, but maybe the truth that is emerging from this about entrepreneurship, about the reality of being from Scarborough and building an enterprise and the hurdles that we're crossing and occupational burnout are all making it possible that that marker is being moved. Yeah. And that fills me with a lot of excitement. I think about who I was when I was a student over here. 
I would take the 38 Highland Creek to get to UTSC. I would take the 131 Nugget to get to uh, uh, Scarborough Town Center, then commute downtown. And that was a lot of dead time, yeah. hours on end. And how did I fill that with music? Yeah. And I'm not knocking music, but how great would it have been if I had a podcast Absolutely. to mainline? And uh, you know, eventually I did find interviews, but the interviews I did find were uh, hip hop artists, yeah. right? And it was their unique context. And I think I was able to download and emulate a lot of their uh, sort of their, their, their braggadocious, um, self-aggrandizing and, and just hustling, hustler mentality, if you will. And that got me to the dance, but it didn't help me to sustain myself within. But conversations like this are making it so much more likely. There's a, a younger version of Hamza walking up that catwalk uh, at uh, Markham and Shepherd, mm. and uh, is listening to us right now. And if you're listening to us right now, uh, man, I'm, I'm so happy for you. I can't wait to see the person that you become because you're going to be able to participate in that wealth creation that you just alluded to over here. I'm excited for you. Yeah, I'm excited for the future that you and I are never going to get to see. We're not, you and I are not going to be alive long enough unless the technology catches up and can download our consciousness into AI and then we can just observe this from the other side of the screen. But for all intents and purposes, we're planting seeds the shade of, we're planting trees, the shade of which we shall never get to sit in. And that's melancholic, but also uh, very exciting. No, it's a, it's a beautifully put. I'm, I mean, you're definitely really good at words, man. Like, hey man, that, that 40K in five years at UTSE <laughs> should have got me something, man. Because it sure didn't give me um, the same employment edge that some of my management buddies were able to get, man. I, yeah. was, I felt so insecure, bro. I mean, all my friends were landing jobs at Microsoft and PwC and IBM. And here I was being like, what the hell am I going to do with this English degree? Yeah. And I had a 2.86 C GPA. It's mind blowing. My first two years, C's, D's, F's, the occasional B minus, right? When did you graduate? 2010. 2010 I had to take an extra year because I was, it was in shambles, man. The first two and a half years were an absolute write-off. Mm -hmm. Business and poli-sci, dropped out of business, only poli-sci for a while. And I'm like, what is happening here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is absolute bullshit. Bullshit. Why am I in university? I was mm. so close to dropping out, so close. Um, but I'm glad it all worked out in the end. Yeah. I'm glad it worked out in the end, man. Perfect. I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, 2.86 GPA, CGPA having Hamza. I'm not University of Toronto grad Hamza. I'm Hamza who happens to have a 2.86 CGPA in my undergrad. I'm Hamza who happens to have been a student at the University of Toronto Scarborough. I'm constantly evolving, man. I'm not the same person that I was this morning. Mm. And thank you for creating a platform that encourages that kind of unpacking of, of the self and also the message of con continual development and iterative development. Like I heard a couple of episodes, Lawrence Ita, Muhammad Faki. Um, I'm just halfway through, I, I believe her name is Jennifer from Dare Arts, yes. which is really cool. I'm, really cool. I asked when the Satish Bala episode is going to drop. Yeah. She's saying April, man, you're going to keep me waiting that long, <laughs> man. I'm pumped for that. So keep going in, man. Yeah. I mean, we've got to this process where like we're gotten good at me creating this content. Now it's about distribution and getting better at like, you know, finding the quality within the, the larger context of video and creating smaller segments of it too, right. to help distribute the content. Yeah. And it all goes, it feeds into the larger scheme of things, right? We're trying to empower people through technology. This being a vehicle, then we have the startup standup, which is uh, an event people can come in and share, showcase, you know, what am I doing and how we're doing it. You just did our new segment of the standup did, earlier on. Well, people now are doing it in person now in wow. front of a group of 60 to 80 people. Right. Um, and again, part of that is endurance training. Yes. Right. Imagine like we tell, so when we start off the startup stand up, we just did the first one, January 27th. The next one's coming up. We wow. haven't set a date yet, but we pack a room full of 60 to 80 people. We tell everybody, okay, this is a stand up. If you, this is how you participate. If you get tired or you want to walk away, anytime you can step away, move yourself, take a phone call, get some food, whatever it is, but come it's back. Fluid. 
But if you're participating, what it is, you're in a semicircle, everybody steps up and get access to a mic. Three to four minutes, and you declare who you are. When you say your name, right? Hi, I'm Hamza Khan. Everyone in the room says, hi, Hamza. Wow. So there's 60, 80 people saying that. That's triggers on each other, for sure. Right? But also, it triggers like a response. Huh. The flight or fight response. Like yes. 60 people saying my name Immediate back. Immediate acknowledgement. That's very uh, unnerving for yeah. most people, right? The second thing is, okay, now... Everybody in the room is instructed. Whoever has a mic, both eyeballs, six, like, you know, 120 eyeballs, lock in, looking at that person to create a stressful environment. So if you, for three, two, three to four minutes, can talk about what you, who you are, what you're doing, past accomplishment, um, what you're currently working on, and you know, what you need help with, in that kind of environment, you've literally, like, yeah, right after that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. The intensity. Well, perfect. That is nothing compared to going on LinkedIn and doing it. Yes. It's nothing but going and making a phone call. Exactly. Right? So being able to have that intentionality and putting things out in the universe, in this high stress environment, you can do it. And we do it every month and come back and redo it and you know give updates. I love it, man. Come and train yourself. I love it, dude. You know? And I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're doing that because it still remains a, a fear. People would rather be in the grave than delivering the eulogy, man. That's mm. so true. Public speaking, even what we're doing right now, technically is considered public speaking. Like you and I are looking at each other, but we're subconsciously aware that there's two other people in the room. And when you really think about it, there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands, of people listening to this yeah. in the immediate future. Yeah. And that is weird when you visualize that a room of a thousand people watching you. That's essentially what's happening right now. Yeah. And I'm saying that, and my heart's fluttering. I'm. I'm. It's beating a little faster than. It is and yeah. I feel a little little sweat coming down the neck, man. <laughs> yeah, and you can't help that. It's a human response, right? Like somebody told me this, like one of the reasons why people are afraid of public speaking is the only time the average human in history has been able to look in front of a crowd of people like that is when you're defending yourself from the village from why you shouldn't be killed or expelled. Right? Never thought about that. Right? I Think about it. The average person doesn't actually face the crowd, no. except the chief or the village leader or whatever yeah. it was, or the tribe leader, the city leader, the mayor, whatever it was. Right. The average person doesn't have to face people like that. Wow. So it's almost like a primal response. If you're in that kind of environment, you're kind of arguing for your life, whether the, 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 your community is accusing you of something of or trying to kick you out. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the only negative time you have that interaction. That's wild, man, because as I'm sitting here and talking to you, like I'm trying to simultaneously process what you're telling me. I'm trying to think about an articulate and engaging response, but I'm also subconsciously afraid. I'm afraid that I'm not saying the right thing. I'm afraid that you're judging me, that the two people in the room are judging me, that what I'm saying is not going to land well and resonate with the audience. It's this weird thing that's happening in my head that I'm calm and I'm happy right now, but as soon as I walk out, I'm going to feel just how stressful this was. Yeah. Like this is actually a lot of fun, but also simultaneously very stressful. Yeah. And I think that you're right, man. There are reasons that are hardwired in us. Because yeah, I mean, prior to becoming a public speaker, when, when did I ever have the opportunity to present and talk? Yeah. Almost and, never, man. Absolutely. In school, I would do show and tell, and that was nerve-wracking, man. Yeah. Well, the presentation, oh, when you're supposed to like, read oh, in front of the class. Oh my God, a disaster. Dude, the first public speaking I ever did, mm. it was two minutes long and I had a piece of paper and it was covering my face the entire time as a professional speaker, professional, quote unquote. Uh, but the first time I ever did public speaking, I actually blacked out. I stood up on stage. There was a microphone over there. It was UTSC. I was running for some position within student government and mm. I went up on stage. There were seven people in the audience. Three of them were eating and two of them weren't even paying attention. One guy was like, why, why, is the, why are these randos standing up over here? And I got to the mic and I just stood there and I was like, 
thank you. And I walked off like, I swear to God, the Ooh. first time I ever did public speaking. Wow. Because it, it provoked in me maybe that, uh, that ancient fear yeah. of being in front of the, the tribunal. So, funny enough, I actually had the opposite response. Interesting. So for me, having regular conversations with people is hard growing up. I didn't have the intentionality to get my thoughts across. For me, right. condensing my thoughts was the biggest problem. Yeah. Because I felt like they had a mind of its own and I was one trying to capture what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like a sporadic way of thinking. And I could, it was really hard for me to condense those thoughts and get my words out. Oh, bro. Or like get that knowledge out. But first time I did public speaking, it's intentionality. Yes. It was already built into it. I'm there for an intent. I'm here to deliver this message that's pre-constructed that I've already thought about in my head. I can deliver that. So public speaking became a way for me to condense my thoughts in an artificial environment Yo. and made my regular conversations better. I'm getting chills thinking about that, man. That you, you gave me the vocabulary to describe my own journey because last night I was hanging out with my fiance and my in-laws and there was a point in the night the four of us were around the table and these are fast talkers and they're witty and you know they talk over each other and they can hear each other and I just actually became subdued at one point in the night. I couldn't yeah. get a word in. I, I could barely process what they were talking about five minutes ago because they'd already moved on to 1,500 other topics. And I just sat down and I was like letting myself formulate an idea. And then my father-in-law looks at me and he's like, Hums, everything okay, buddy? I'm like, yeah, it is. I'm fine. I'm just trying to figure out something valuable to say. Yeah. And he's, he couldn't understand it. He's like, hey, just say it, right? And afterwards, my fiance's like, why didn't you say anything? I was like, because I'm, I'm a slow thinker yeah. and it takes me a while to articulate myself and I don't do well in these informal, casual venues, man. I'm, a sh I'm, a, I'm terrible at small talk. Yeah. I'm terrible at small, I'm, I, and you know what? I have no problem being terrible at small talk. Yeah. Some people have it, it's a gift, they're witty, they're naturally funny. I'm not. Where I thrive is moments like this, where there's a, where there's a, a dialogue with very clear pauses between the two of us and we build on top of each other's ideas until it ramps up into a crescendo into something beautiful, yeah. which is going to be the end product of this podcast, man. Absolutely. Um, and public speaking does that for me too. Like I'm, I stand up on stage and I've been speaking for an hour, but in my head it felt like one minute. Yeah. Like I stand up, I open my mouth and a minute later people are clapping, hopefully. And what happened in that process was I was able to formulate a better understanding of the very topic that I presented Amazing. because I was able to articulate it and experience the audience reactions and, you know, uh, juxtapose it with my slides and all that too. So this, this, this format is where I thrive. Amazing. And that's, that's great to hear. So uh, I'm going to wrap up around this thought because like, sure. um, it's already been an hour, bro. It has been an hour. Yeah. It feels like two minutes. Can I ask one question before yeah. we wrap up? What is the biggest question or pain point for your listeners? I want to leave them with like an answer to that if, if I haven't already addressed it. What would you say to the listeners, the Bluemex listeners and viewers? What's something they're struggling with right now? What's something that, that's you getting know, in the way for them? It's funny because like we don't have a typeface for our listeners. We do this more for the guests coming on. Really? That's all I frame it as. And so like everyone who comes here, like we don't, like we don't target ads. We don't run any ads. We don't, we don't target an audience, right? The way I see it is that each guest that comes on, they, they're, they share it to their audience, the podcast. Some of the audience comes in and becomes like a churn rate, right? The average listener only listens about five to six minutes. Good for them. Right? Average video of ours gets at a thousand views. Average person only listens five to six minutes. But I care about is the one to five people who listen to the full thing. Quality, man. Right? The ones who are searching for the knowledge, who, who, who really get captivated by it. And that could come from an audience member from your audience, right? When you reshare the video of our episode, right? And they could really capture it about seeing a full one hour of Hamza Khan going into his That's thought exciting, process. Man. They could have been hooked on from the book, 
hooked down from our previous thing, but now they get this as a vehicle. Then they come into our channel and see a whole bunch of other content. Like, right. oh, can I? Can can anyone else uh, I jive with? Especially YouTube's algorithm if it suggested it to them. Yes. Based off of their previous watch history, right. then becomes a content vehicle, right? Yes. Because I've that. done that, gone gone through those binges. Yeah. We find a great channel and you're binging through and you're like learning all this kind of sure. stuff and you're digesting the content, right? And uh, that's the magic behind all this. Yes, sir. Right. So I don't think it's about the per viewer thing. It's more about you getting experience yourself, okay, in full extent, and other people just clicking. So I would hope then for those listeners and viewers that this uh, Bluemex is is a high speed neon train that's just moving yeah. and you get on wherever you get on and you get off wherever you have to get off. But hopefully for the duration that you were on the ride that we, we moved you forward, we moved your projects, your thinking, pro your thought process, um, your ideas about the world and understanding of the world forward. And, you know, I, there's going to be some diehards that are going to be with you from episode one all the way to episode 20,000. Mm -hmm. And some people are going to be here for five episodes. Some are going to be here for two seasons. Absolutely. Uh, but when you get on, uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. And, and man, like, thank you to you guys and your whole squad over here for creating something beautiful that I genuinely, and I, 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 I'm not just saying this to say it uh, and, and to gas you guys up, but I wish this was around when I was having my, my come up, if you will. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm never gonna stop having my come up, but the early part of my come up, where I was discovering and trying to find this information and it wasn't available, it wasn't published, people weren't taking the time, especially on a Sunday, to bang out five of these episodes. Like, I tip my non-existent hat to you guys, man. You guys are doing the thing that'll make it more likely that a future Ravi and a future Hamza will succeed, man. Perfect, so thank good. you. And Hamza, this has been a great episode. Man, man. this is a thank good time, you. man. Yeah. Thank you, brother, man. Awesome.